Good evening. Glad that you guys came out tonight on this wonderful Monday. Why don't we start with the word of prayer? Let's ask God to bless us in a special way. Father in heaven, we just thank you again for this special time. And Lord, we just pray and ask that your spirit would be here in a strong way, that you would lift us up to heaven. And God, we just also pray and ask that the devil would have no place in this room. Lord, we pray that you would enlarge our mental capacity, that you would invigorate our mind, and that we would be able to grasp heavenly deep things. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. It's quite funny. I um, was driving here just about 20 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago. And as I was driving here, I was got in the car, turned on the car, and I pulled out of the, the driveway. And as I was pulling out, all of a sudden I, I started smelling something. And I thought to myself, what in the world does that smell? So I smelled it again. I continued driving, I began to smell my coat, and I began to realize that my coat actually smells like gasoline. What a relevant sermon for when you're talking about hellfire, right? <laughs> a couple days ago, I was actually filling up gas, and I think that's how I got some gasoline on my coat. I usually wash my coats once a week if I'm doing a seminar. But if you come up to me afterwards and you're wondering, why does he smell like gasoline? There's the answer. Hopefully, we'll be able to turn into some kind of illustration. All right. name of the sermon today is called The End of Social Justice. The End of Social Ju Injustice. We've been covering big questions, big questions, big ideas. How do we understand the Bible in, a, in our current framework of society? How do we understand all the things that are taking place in the world and try to understand the very good God that Scripture portrays? Well, something I want you to pay attention to is this, social injustice. It's sort of a word, word that's thrown out today in our society. Oftentimes, you'll find young adults, protesters, individuals, activists who are really concerned about the issues that are taking place in society. You ask them, what are your pastime hobbies? They'll say things like this. Well, I'm an activist against social injustice. Well, what exactly is social injustice? Take a good look at this definition. Social injustice is a relative concept about the claim unfairness or injustice of a society in its divisions of rewards and burdens and other incidental inequalities based on the user's worldview of humanity. Immorality is often used as a synonym for this. Oftentimes in our world today, you will see all sorts of in social injustice. Uh, just several years ago, there was the civil rights so, uh, social injustice, and people were clamoring, trying to find a way to be equal in a society that was not equal. I'm here today because of the struggling that took place in the 50s and in the 60s for social equality. Can you say amen to those faithful people? And what's also very interesting is when you go back and you begin to examine history, in fact, what is so interesting, I, I just want to say this, the reason why there is such a diverse group of people in our church today is because of people that sacrificed their bodies during those struggles for social equality. This is why we can all be in a church today, amen? Amen. amen. 
You take a good look at some of the graphic pictures of what many activists went through during that time trying to fight for civil rights. In fact, this is a well-known famous picture of two Caucasians that decided to sit down with an African-American in a restaurant, and when they did, all of a sudden, there was this crowd of interesting young men who came there and were upset of this, uh, what was taking place. They decided to pour drinks on all of them while they were laughing and mocking. This is no scene out of movie, movie. This is an actual event that was taking place. Take a good look at that. There are two brave Caucasians, one African-American, and then you have a group of young men. They were pouring drinks on their faces, saying all sorts of things to them, derogatory things to them, but they stood it out. They waited until these people left. Can you imagine the bravery these individuals might have possessed? Amazing when you think about it. All sorts of other things that were taking place during the civil rights struggle, and you saw it was a time of activism. And something that I think is very important to point out is that much of the most successful kinds of activism took place during peaceful protest. A lot of times you're seeing all sorts of kinds of protests that are taking place in our world today, and many of them are not dignified in their approach. If you believe in the dignity of what you are protesting, then you should be able to say it and communicate that in a very dignified way. Can you say amen to that? I think that's very near and dear to me. I think that needs to be understood more and more when you think about it. Other individuals like Gandhi, during the 1940s, who began to fight back through peaceful protesting and through speeches uh, about civil equality. And what's very interesting is many of these individuals were martyred for those causes. Other individuals during the 60s as well were protesting wars that were taking place. And you can see all the, the, the bravery and the courage that was required for many of these protesters as they stood against the, the wrong things that were in society. Other individuals gave up their lives. People surrendered um, their bodies for the sake of making a powerful argument against the injustices that were taking place. Um, this also was a recent one. There was a young lady, many of you know about her, in um, Afghanistan. She was actually attacked. Burning oil was spilled onto her face. She survived that, but what took place is there was a group of people that began to protest against the brutal attacks of the Taliban that were taking place. Other individuals like this, or groups like this, and I think to me, this is where my heart is at right here, individuals that are protesting against child trafficking. That has become a, 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 an unusual phenomenon that has grown more and more and more. In fact, I was looking at one report, there was over 800,000 children that were being um, prostituted across international borders. 800,000. That's not even the worldwide figures of how many actually are being prostituted and trafficked um, during this time. Over one million little children, their bodies are being used. Can you imagine the kind of social injustice, this kind of social injustice? It just really just uh, makes you angry when you think about this. How could somebody abuse a young child? Pay money. And we're not talking, ladies and gentlemen, just about 15, uh, 14 year olds. We're talking about ages such down, all the way down to two or three year olds. And it's tragic when you begin to think about this. Young girls and young boys sold into slavery. And a lot of questions begin to come to your mind when you begin to think about all these things that are taking place in our society. 
But I praise God there are wonderful Christian groups that are striving against these sort of injustices and doing all they can to rescue these children and put them in wonderful homes. Can you say amen to that? Now, what's also interesting, I believe that the greatest fighter of social injustice was none other than Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus Christ was somebody who changed the world, not from the top down, but from the bottom up, and he was striving against the evils that were in this world. John talks about Jesus and said that he came to destroy the works of Satan. But here's something I want you to pay attention to, and it's this, that Jesus is also dealing not with just current social injustice and social evils, but he's dealing with something that is far more cosmic and more perplexing than the problems that exist today. I like what one writer said about Jesus when they were describing him. Greatest man in history, named Jesus, had no servants, yet they called him master, had no degree, yet they called him teacher, had no medicines, yet they called him healer, he had no army, yet kings feared him, amen? He won no military battles, yet he conquered the world. He committed no crime, yet they crucified him. He was buried in a tomb, yet he lives today. Our God was somebody who fought against the evils that are in this world, and the principles that he taught has led to many groups, many entities, many individuals to strive against the injustice that was taking place in the world. In fact, India used to have a well-known practice called sati, which was this. Basically, when a husband died before his uh, wife did, they would oftentimes burn, the, his, burn his body into ashes and then take her while she was still alive and burn her as well. This practice was taking place all across India and it was a Christian missionary by the name of William Carey who began a, a campaign to eliminate that and in the majority and the most parts of India today it does not exist. Amen. So you see what God has done. He has raised up men and women to deal with the problems that are in this world. But Jesus himself has not given up on this fight against the injustice. And what we're going to realize as we study this out, that God is dealing with a, a huge, enormous, uh, great social injustice that if it is not stopped, will bring down all of existence. God has a very interesting dilemma. It's very perplexing when you begin to realize the problem that God has. With a God who's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, many ask the question, why hasn't God put an end to all the evil that is in the world today? What we are going to discover is that the problem is much bigger, the dilemma more intricate, and the stakes greater than previously thought. This presentation is by no means exhaustive, but will cue us into the real dynamics of God's great dilemma. Now, everybody, take your Bible. We're going to be looking at something very interesting. We're going to go back. We're going to push pause right now where we are in the world, and we're going to go back all the way back. And what you are going to discover is that when God began creation, he created a group of wonderful beings called angels. The Bible actually describes one of the most beautiful angels of all of creations was none other than Lucifer. The Bible says in Ezekiel 28, he was the seal of perfection. The seal of perfection. The word seal is a very interesting word in Hebrew. It actually means the limits of perfection. 
So when God created Lucifer and endowed him with all sorts of gifts, all sorts of position and beauty, God did everything in his creative power to make this beautiful angel. This was God's greatest masterpiece of all time. Yet he would become the most ugliest, heinous creature of all time. The Bible says something in 1 John, and this is the verse I want us to go to, and it describes the work of the devil. Take a good look at what the scripture says right here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever commits sin also commits what? Commits what? Lawlessness, and sin is what? Okay, really quickly, what is the biblical definition of sin according to 1 John? It's what? Lawlessness. Now, anytime you see the word sin in the context, we're going to put the word lawlessness and add some grammar to make sure it comes out right. And you know that he was manifested, talking about Jesus, to take away our what? Lawlessness. Very good. And in him there is no what? Very good. Lawlessness. Now, notice this. He who, well, out of word there, commits what? Lawlessness is of the devil. In other words, someone who is living in sin and refuses uh, to struggle against it. Now notice this. For the devil has what? Committed what? Lawlessness from the what? Now notice what the scripture is teaching right here. What did the devil do from the very beginning? He broke God's what? Law. Here the scriptures point out what the devil did. He broke God's law. Now when you take a good look at the Ten Commandments and we ask the question, wait a minute, which law did God actually, which, which law did Satan actually break? It's very interesting. Take a good look at John chapter 8 verse 44. Jesus here was addressing the Pharisees and look what he says right here. You are of the what? Of your father the who? The devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a what from the beginning? So what commandment did the devil break from the very beginning, ladies and gentlemen? Thou shall not murder. What's the difference between thou shall not murder and thou shall not kill? Is it the same thing? No, there is a big difference between thou shall not murder and thou shall not kill. When you read Exodus 20, Exodus 20 is actually teaching thou shall not murder. Does God take life in scripture, yes or no? He has. Does God violate his own law? Absolutely not. What is the difference between murder and killing? Murder is unjustified taking of life. That is the difference. Murder is unjustified taking of life. And God has never broken that commandment. In fact, the word that is used in Hebrew to describe that in Exodus 20 actually means manslayer, someone who is murdering somebody. But the Bible makes it very clear that the devil broke the commandment that says, Thou shall not what? Murder. Now let me ask you a question. Is there an angelic cemetery in heaven, yes or no? Is there an angelic cemetery in heaven? Is there? Well then who did he murder? Okay, now something I want you to pay attention to, ladies and gentlemen, is this is that murder is more than just the act, it's the, it's the what? It's the thought. Even Jesus says this, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, he's guilty of that same commandment, the breaking of that commandment that says, thou shall not murder. You find that in Matthew. 
But I want you to pay attention to this, okay? Because this is extremely important. What God is ultimately dealing with is not just actions, but the thoughts behind those what? Actions. So even if we ask God to get rid of every sinful kind of action, what does he still have to deal with? He still has to deal with the thoughts. And when you think about God's problem, God's great dilemma in this huge, great drama, you take a good look at this. The object of God's supreme hatred, sin, is in the heart of the, of the uh, object of God's supreme love, humanity. Fused together. And this is God's great dilemma. He has to try to remove sin without trying to remove the human being. So when we're looking at this great problem and why God hasn't done away with social injustice, God is in this process of trying to separate the evil that is in the heart of mankind. Now we're going to look at something, as I said before. Take your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to see something very powerful here. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus here describes a wonderful parable. Now some of you are thinking to yourself, I know exactly where this sermon is going. You are absolutely 100% most definitely wrong. Matthew chapter 13, if you're there, go ahead and say amen. We talked about this Friday night. We're going to Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 24. Are we all there? By the way, if you see somebody without a Bible, just take a Bible out of your pew and just hand it to them. Right? Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 24. Take a good look at what the scriptures are teaching right here. Another what? Parable. What were the two reasons why Jesus gave parables? A, to reveal truth, number, and B, to conceal truth. A, to reveal truth, and B, to conceal truth. Reveal truth to those who were looking, conceal truth from those who were seeking to hurt Jesus. Let's continue. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also what? Appeared. Now, let me ask you a question. When you're looking so far in this parable, has the harvest taken place, yes or no? No, it has not. But what has taken place? There seems to be some kind of visible fruition of the things that were planted, but the harvest is still not complete. And so while these things begin to pull from the surface or push out of the surface and emerge, all of a sudden, watch what the servants say right here. Take a good look at this. We examined this Friday night. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, now watch the two questions they asked. Sir, did you not now sow what? Good seed in your field. Now notice what they're saying right here. Aren't you a good farmer? Don't you do good things? In other words, aren't you good? But pay attention to the next question. How then does it have what? Tears. In other words, where did the evil come from? Putting those two questions together, Jesus is basically giving a parable of a question that everybody in the world asks, and that is this. God, if you're so good, why is the world so evil? But there yet, there still has not been a harvest. Let's continue. Let's see what happens next. He said to them in what? Enemy has what? Done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you what? Uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the what? 
harvest, and at the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, and gather the what? Wheat in the what? Barn here. Now I want you to pay attention to this because we're going to explore God's great dilemma. God's great dilemma is this. That sin in all its deceptiveness has not been fully seen and understood by humanity. The very fact that there is division in our world today over the principles of God's kingdom is a clear indication that sin in all its evil has not been fully examined, as well as righteousness. Take a good look at this. I wrote this. Here's the catch 22. God is not just dealing with sinful actions that lead to social injustice. He is dealing with the ideas and thoughts that produce those actions. While we may ask God to vanquish current evil, the unanswered questions that lead to the same issues would still exist. Even if evil is immediately checked, questions may arise in the future which would reproduce similar results of woe and death. So as how is God stopping social injustice permanently? By painfully and purposely allowing both evil and good to reach fully ripened states where all beings in the universe can clearly see the potent examined effects of following another government other than God's. In order to prohibit a multiplicity of evil's reoccurrence, all while preserving freedom, God must let it cycle out in one whole planet to completely and permanently prevent it from happening again. You know, somebody asked me the question not too long ago as a young adult. They said to me, why hasn't God just stopped all the evil in the world? He has all the power. I said, absolutely he has all the power. But I said, let me ask you a question. I said, if you were God, how would you deal with the problem of suffering and evil in the world today? And this was a philosophy student starting his master's. Not a Christian. And you know what his response to me was? He thought about it for a second. And then he said to me, actually, I'm not sure how to stop suffering. Because there is something every person recognizes. That evil before it starts here, starts here. You can get rid of all the evil actions you want in the world and all the rapists and murderers and child molesters and Hitlers and dictators, all you want. But the same seeds of rebellion that led those men to commit those actions are still present in every one of us. Pretty strong, isn't it? So what God has to do, he has to allow this to completely go to fruition, let it cycle out so that everybody can clearly see the effects of sin. You know, I have a friend, and uh, my dad, let me just tell you something. When I went, when I learned how to drive, it's going to be very embarrassing to share something with you. I uh, failed three times. And there was multiple reasons why I failed my um, driving test. The first time, I took the driving test, did it pretty good, failed it. Second time, mechanical failure. The parking brake wasn't working, or so I thought. My dad said it was. Turned out it was, but I told him it wasn't. Automatic failure. Third time was this. As soon as I was pulling out of the DMV, about to take a left, I was with the instructor, and she says, take a left here. All of a sudden, I almost get into an accident right as I'm pulling out of the DMV. She's very calm. She breathes. She says, go around the corner right there. 
I said, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, what's going to happen? She says, take a U-turn. I'm like, okay. And drive right back into the DMV. <laughs> and that's what I did. But I finally passed my test on the fourth time. And let me tell you something, when I'm teaching people how to drive, oftentimes I can be very strong. And I said, this is the way it's got to be, pay attention to this, because this is how my dad taught me, very patiently, but somebody who said, this is the way things are to be. And he was dealing with a slow student here. One day I was actually teaching somebody how to drive. And this person already has their driver's license. Yeah. And so as we were driving, oftentimes we would, if it wasn't for the angels of God, we would be killing people. <laughs> and so I, every time I'd be driving with this person, I would be giving them driving instructions. So while I was driving, driving with this individual, one thing this individual kept doing, he kept missing all the signs in the freeway. We'd drive for two or three hours and he would not be paying attention to the highway signs. And so I'd always get on his case and I said, hey, pay attention to the signs, pay attention to the signs, pay attention to the signs. And I felt like I was constantly nagging him. And he wouldn't get it. Finally, you know what I did? We were coming off this exit to another highway. And I was about to say something when I put my finger down and I decided to let the mistake go all the way. He missed the exit. And he continued driving for about 20, 30 minutes. Before I finally said something to him, I said, by the way, you missed the freeway 20 or 30 minutes ago. Now you're thinking, what a harsh instructor. You try to teach someone who refuses to or has difficulty understanding something. In other words, pay attention to what I'm saying right now. I let this individual reap the full results of their mistake so that they could effectually learn to never repeat it again. Now, don't get me wrong on this, what I'm trying to say to you. God does not want you to sit in any way. God absolutely hates sin. But he knows in order to prevent a reoccurrence of sin, he has to allow sin to reach a maximum harvest so that everybody can fully see without a shadow of a doubt sin is wrong and it is evil. At the same time, he is allowing righteousness to reach a maximum state as well on earth at this time. And by allowing this to take place, the whole universe can clearly see, wait a minute, this is what sin fully reproduces. We oftentimes say to ourselves, the wages of sin is death. We'll quote the Bible like it's nothing. The wages of sin is death. But we really don't understand what that means. You want to know why? Because oftentimes most of us do not see how selfishness leads to death. God's big problem is he has to allow it cycle out one entire earth, um, you could say, lifespan, and by, uh, by allowing it to cycle out once, the whole universe can clearly see, wait a minute, sin is wrong. Somebody said to me this. They said, Pastor, can you please explain this dilemma a little bit more? I said, here's this. Imagine if you were God. You were God. And you have the power to stop all evil right now. However, if you were to stop this a million years from now, evil would reoccur and it would become worse the second time. 
or you allow it to cycle out painfully. So the whole universe can clearly see the effects of sin so that it is permanently done with. What would you choose? This individual stared at me for a few minutes and then thought about it. And you know what they said? They said, I guess I don't want to be God. I want you to pay attention to this, ladies and gentlemen. Do not miss this point. God's big dilemma is this. If he stops all evil before it is completely understood, it will be repeated again. A million years from now, someone will start raising questions, and the same rebellion that led Lucifer to go against everything and leave one-third of all the angels would reoccur. And it would reoccur, and it would reoccur, and it would reoccur, and it would reoccur. God's big problem is this. He is attempting to stop social injustice permanently. But it allow, it must be that one planet must go through this. And so God is with us in this kind of circumstances. He has not abandoned us. And he is with us and he is helping us to show the whole universe what righteousness truly looks like. And so as we begin to examine this, ladies and gentlemen, I want us to pay attention to the destruction of the wicked at the end of time. Because what you're going to discover is actually a very beautiful and interesting kind of truth. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. God's judgment, if it took place prior to the time that is going to take place, would only lead to a universe that would have questions and would have fear and eventually erupt again into rebellion. Revelation chapter 20 actually describes the time that God carries out justice, and you're going to see something very beautiful. Revelation 20, let's start with verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from where? Heaven, having the key to the what? bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. By the way, the word bottomless pit is the word abusos. It appears in two other places, another time in Revelation, another time in the Gospel of Luke, when the demons actually said, are you going to send us to the abusos before the time? So do the demons know that their end is near? Absolutely. The Bible says in Revelation 12, the devil knows he has a short time. So then if survivalism is not their primary motive, what is? Utter destruction and pain to God's own heart is what drives them now. But take a good look at this. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a what? A thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should what? Deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But pay attention to that very enigmatic verse at the very end. But after these things, he must be what? Release for a little while. Now, something I want you to pay attention to this. When you're reading all of Revelation 20, starting with the first three verses, and then you get to that phrase, it's a little bit strange. It almost implies a kind of necessity. Take a good look at that again. But after these things, he must be what? Released for a little while. During that thousand years, God has taken the righteous to heaven. The wicked are simply sleeping. And during that thousand years, God is allowing the righteous to go over all the books. And he's allowing the character of God to be very transparent throughout all of human history. The Bible actually says in Psalms that this is going to be a great honor for all the saints to go through the time of judgment. 
But as they are going through that time of judgment, eventually it comes to an end. And after a thousand years, after one thousand years of Satan simply being here on earth with his angels and seeing a destroyed and just completely degenerated planet, you would think he had learned the lesson of rebellion. But the Bible says this, but after these things, he must be released for a little while, implying there are still questions in the great controversy that still remain unanswered. There's things that still are not answered about this whole great sin dilemma, and so God allows Satan to be released. In fact, one commentator put it this way in the wonderful book, Desire of Ages, talking about why Satan was not destroyed at the time of the cross. Take a good look at this. And for the, what? Sake of man, Satan's existence must be what? Now I want you to pay attention to this, because this is extremely important. And don't misquote me on this. The reason why Satan is still allowed to live is because humanity is not fully convinced about Satan's government. When you really begin to think about this, this is a really interesting thing. This is a really crazy insight that for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be, pulling out that same phrase in Revelation, must be continued. The devil is allowed to live simply because humanity still hasn't made a decision. And because we still haven't made a decision, sin is still allowed to come to a place where it is growing worse and worse. And we're still not convinced about the principles of selfishness. We're still not convinced about all the evil that's in the world today. And we're looking for other causes. But God is wanting us to understand that it is the principles of selfishness and self-love that has led to the decay and destruction that is in the world today. This goes beyond just Satan himself. This deals with the very ideas. Even if God destroyed Satan, God would still have a problem. He would have to deal with those ideas. And ideas are worse than the being itself. Lies can spread and grow. God's big dilemma is this. Revelation chapter 20 says something very interesting. Verse 4, talking about the righteous. I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was what? Committed to them. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no what? Power, but they shall be what? Priests of God and of Christ. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, we shall be priests and kings with him. When do we become priests? We become priests during the thousand years. When do we become kings? Right after when God recreates the earth. The Bible even points out that picture. The difference between a priest and a king, a priest rules over spiritual matters. A king rules over temporal matters. And so during that thousand years, God is allowing to take the place of priests, and as we are priests with God, we are opening up the books of judgment, we're going over them, we're examining all these things, and God is being vindicated, his government is being vindicated, and Satan's government is, be is being clearly examined and seen for what it is, and that is utter destruction. In fact, the Bible pinpoints this issue right here too as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, do you not know that the what? Saints will what? Judge the world. Do you not know that we shall what? Judge angels. In fact, if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible's teaching us something very important. Paul says this, look, if you're struggling with dealing with your neighbor, how in the world are you going to judge the universe? Think about this. And when you think about the primary principles God is trying to inculcate into humanity, what is that? Love, mercy, Faith, hope. 
You want to know why? Because God wants those attributes used in the judgment. You put me to be a judge right now, I'll tell you, when I see some crime evil, I'm like, hang him. Get rid of him. Execute him. We have an imbalanced sense of justice. Oftentimes it's too little or it's too much. And we don't quite understand the balance, but love, as we begin to understand more and more of what love is, we begin to see what the principles are fully teaching. And as the New Jerusalem comes down after the thousand years, the Bible says something very remarkable right here. Now when the thousand years have what? Expired, Satan will be what? Released from his prison. Now notice what the very first thing he goes out to do. And will go out and to what? Deceive the nations. One thousand years, God has shown the universe that he cannot change the will of this angel. He can't change his heart. And so this angel, the very first thing he does, as soon as he has a, a, a crowd of people, remember we learned during Friday night, wherever Satan has an audience, he has property. As soon as he has an audience among all the deceived, of those who have been resurrected, he begins to lead them out. Look what the Bible says next. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. Fire came down out of, from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now notice this. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. But pay attention to that next phrase right there. Where the beast and the what? False prophet are. Now let me ask you a question. According to this verse, who's actually destroyed first? The beast and false prophet or the devil? Think carefully about this. Do you know when the beast and the prophet are, false prophet are thrown into the fire? You read the previous chapter, it's at the second coming. So let me ask you a question. When does hellfire take place? Better think carefully about this one. You go to an evangelistic series, what will they tell you? When does hellfire take place? After the thousand years. You see right there, after the thousand years. But when you take a good look at that scripture, it seems to imply that the devil is being thrown into a place where the false prophet and the beast already are. But the problem is this, we understand hellfire, destruction to take place after the thousand years. Why is the verses teaching this kind of thought? Because it is this. Pay attention to this. The beast and the false prophet are not individuals, they are kinds of governments. Hear what I just said? The beast and the false prophet are not kinds of individuals or beings or actually people. They are false systems of the devil. The beast represents a, a very human, or it represents a very human attempt to reach God. A very human attempt, a system to reach God. And what the false prophet represents, it represents another form of a system, of a kind of government that is off the mark. And so what happens is, is that the lake of fire not only represents just a, a, a place when God pours out the fire, but it also represents a place of destruction. One of the reasons why the beast and the false prophet are thrown in at the second coming is because as the righteous are in heaven, they're beginning to go over all the books and understand the plan of redemption and Satan's plans, and, they, and the beast and the false prophet, those human kinds of governments are being destroyed during the thousand years. Humanity is becoming convinced of the issues. Are you tracking yes or no? 
And what happens is when Satan is thrown into that place where the lake of fire is, and lake of fire is obviously a real thing, but don't get this, don't miss this part, is that the very fact the verse is saying he was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, the scriptures are trying to teach it is at this moment that Satan's government is ultimately destroyed. It is at this moment that his government is destroyed. God could have destroyed the devil a lot longer ago, a lot earlier ago. But the problem is, there needed to be a convinced um, humanity, a convinced creation. And so it is at this point, when the wicked attempt to take what God has always offered freely, which was his home, when they begin to attempt to take the new Jerusalem by force, it has become apparent, clearly apparent to the entire universe that God can not save those who do not want to be saved. In fact, wonderful book, Great Controversy, puts it this way and says this, with all the facts of the Great Controversy in view, with all the what? Facts of the Great Controversy in view, the whole universe, now notice this, both loyal and what? Rebellious with one accord. Now notice this, what they all say with one accord, just and true are your what? Thy ways, thou king of what? Saints. In other words, the whole universe is brought to you understand with all the facts of the Great Controversy, as God shows the whole universe panoramic scenes where people are rejecting him, where God has done everything he can to save them, the whole universe is clearly seeing God has done the uttermost to try to save, but people and beings and angels have rejected this. And even the wicked themselves acknowledge, God, you did everything to try to save me. And when you begin to think about that powerful thought, the Bible begins to hone in on this very powerful point right here. Jesus says something in John chapter 5, verse 22. He says, the Father has committed all judgment to him. Then what the Bible says in right, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, that judgment was committed to the who? Saints. And then when you read Revelation 20, verse 12, there's a unique perspective that get, begins to emerge. It is this. Jesus, or the Father, gives all judgment to the Son. The Son gives all the judgment to the righteous. God wants humanity to judge humanity. But even the righteous, you know what they do? They give judgment to the wicked. The Bible describes at the latter stage of Revelation 20 that the wicked, the books are open right before their very eyes, and they themselves become their own judges. Which tells you this, even God does not violate the will of the wicked in their destruction. They themselves will consent to what is happening. Why? Because they're, they're seeing all the facts now. Nothing can be hid. Ladies and gentlemen, this is extremely important. When you begin to see about the perfect justice system of God, God works by consensus. He begins to bring all his creatures and he wants them to see all the facts right there. Everything's out on the line. Nobody can lie about the whole thing. In fact, when you begin to understand this powerful point, you begin to see something. As you understand the perspective the world has about God's justice in dealing with the wicked, you begin to find it is extremely heinous and ugly. You know, something I learned when I was a Hindu was this about Christianity, a certain kind of belief. Somebody would come to me and they said, brother, I want you to read this tract. And it was this little cartoon tract, little booklet. I looked through it and it would say, Jesus is the only way to heaven. 
I say, that's interesting. And the next page is, if you reject Jesus, you're going to burn in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Third page is, God is love. Please accept the God of love. <laughs> now you may laugh about that, but the majority of the world is pushing that picture of who God is. They're pushing this idea that God wants to burn people forever and ever and ever and ever. If you may not think that's such a big deal, you go out into the world and you will see there are thousands yet millions of people who are skeptics because of this false teaching. This idea that God is not proportionate in the judgment, this idea that God is not just and he's just mindlessly burning people for all of eternity, you begin to see why people are rejecting God. One day I was talking to my philosophy teacher and he said this to me, and he was somebody who was teaching about reasoning. He said, we were talking afterwards and he said, I reject this God and I'll tell you why. I said, why? He said, I cannot believe that a God would be torturing people throughout all of eternity for simple acts that they themselves might not have fully understood. And you know what I said? to him, I said, I don't believe in that God either. Copied some other preacher who said that. But it's a powerful truth when you begin to realize the reason why people are rejecting God is because there still is this middle-aged church idea that is still being pushed and promoted. But when you begin to realize, wait a minute, God is not going to burn people for all of eternity. Sure, there is a, a, a responsibility and accountability that the wicked must face, but they themselves will be ultimately put out where they won't suffer anymore. Even God will end that. And when you begin to think it is not just justice that is ending the life of the wicked during this destruction time, it is mercy itself. And God puts them out of their misery. It's a powerful thought. In fact, look what one Greek scholar says right here. Talking about these ideas and these words in verses that talk about forever and ever. When the adjective anios means everlasting is used in Greek with nouns of action, it has reference to the result of the what? Act and not the what? Process. The phrase everlasting punishment is compared, comparable to everlasting redemption and everlasting salvation. The act more than the process. Both scriptural phrases. No one ever supposes that we are being redeemed or saved forever. We were redeemed and saved once for all by Christ with eternal results. Amen. In the same way, the lost will not be passing through the process of punishment forever, but will be punished once and for all with eternal results. On the other hand, the noun life is not just a noun of action, but a noun expressing a state. Thus, life itself is what? Eternal. One day this Baptist preacher came, or Baptist man came to the, one of my series I was doing, and he says, look, I reject everything you guys are saying about hellfire. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. I said, I want you to answer these questions for me. I actually went off, memorized these questions, and I just mouthed them all off to him, and I put these questions down right here. I said, if you answer these questions, we can understand this concept a little bit more. If God recreates a heaven and new earth, where will hell be? Number two, how does God pronounce no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death if there is an eternal dying of lost souls? You ever thought about that? That's super important. Number three, if immortality is based on the tree of life, how do the unrighteous burn for all of eternity? Oh yeah, they're going to burn for a thousand years, and when they're about to disintegrate, all of a sudden someone plucks them up, a fruit of the tree of life, and gives it to them so they can continue burning for another thousand years. Makes zero sense. If hell is real, why is it not mentioned in the most leading Bible, English Bible translations until Matthew? If hell was real, and if Paul was commissioned by God to preach the gospel to the nation, why did Paul not mention hell even once except to declare victory over it? If God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, now just think about this, Ezekiel 33 verse 11, how does trillions and trillions years of torment of the wicked ever satisfy him? God could never be happy. 
And during that time that God is putting the misery, the wicked out of their, their, that state of life, that's going to be a painful time for God. And he takes no pleasure in it. One day the disciples said, hey, Lord, should we cast down fire on these people? And you know what Jesus said to them? You don't even know what kind of spirit you are. Implying the spirit that they were a part of at that moment was the devil's, devil's spirit, which was sin and destruction. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. How does one rectify an eternal punishing because of what? Temporal deeds. What purpose does destroying sinners nonstop for all of eternal existence ever accomplish? One day I heard this preacher and was say the most nonsensical thing I have ever heard anybody else say. He was asked the question, can you please justify how God would burn sinners for all of eternity? Please tell me how that makes sense when you look at the revealed character of God. And you know what this individual said? He, for such a very intelligent man, he gave one of the most ridiculous answers ever. You know what he said? He said this. Well, what's going to happen is that sinners, as they're thrown into hellfire are going to feel pain, they're going to curse God, so they're sinning against God, and so God keeps them in the fire. And so this cycle repeats throughout all of eternity. And as I'm listening, I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding me? Like, you really believe that? When you look at the revealed picture of who Jesus Christ is, and then you try to put it right there to this God that's burning for sinners for all of eternity, does it even make sense? In fact, I'm going to say this in my semi-logical kind of crazy warped brain, that is this. The only person I think would ever be guilty and held uh, and given a punishment of eternal hellfire would be one who causes it. You hear what I just said right now? The only person I can think of who would ever be somewhat remote, who deserves an eternal hellfire uh, where they are burning for all of eternity would be the one who would be causing that. And yet such an ugly, heinous, um, disgusting picture has been placed upon God's character. And yet as we understand these beautiful truths, ladies and gentlemen, what are we doing to share that with the fallen and lost world? If the wicked go straight to hell after death, what is the purpose of a second coming and a future judgment? Just think about this. If they're all going to go straight to hell, if there's going to be, uh, you know, this time, what is the purpose of even a second coming and a future judgment? If evildoers are burning up for all of eternity, then has God actually destroyed evil or simply locked it up? Another question. Under what circumstances could ceaseless torture and endless progressive affliction be justified? If we in a sinful world could not tolerate such evil, if we could not tolerate such a social injustice, how in a perfectly loving heaven could it ever be? Can you say amen to that? If hellfire is an eternal fire, why is Sodom not burning today after it was destroyed with eternal fire? How is the concept of an eternal burning hell consistent with God's revealed justice? If hell is forever, why is death and Hades finally thrown into the lake of fire? If Satan is destroyed and shall never be more, how could he burn throughout all of eternity? In fact, one of my favorite Christian apologists who has unfortunately embraced this teaching, he was debating an atheist by the name of Raymond D. Bradley. And they got over this concept about hellfire. 
Raymond D. Bradley, with just common sense, who was an atheist, said, hey, wait a minute, can you please try to explain and rectify how a loving God could burn sinners for all of eternity? And this individual made that kind of attempt, and he utterly failed at this kind of attempt. But then Raymond D. Bradley said something. He said this, look, here's the thing. If I was God, this is how I would carry out justice right here. Look what he says right here. He gives several propositions. He says, number one, a perfectly good being would not torture anyone for any period, how, whatever, however brief. Amen. A just being would not punish someone eternally. And by the way, there's a difference between torture and torment. Torment is the heart itself reeling against what's taking place. Torture, torture is external pain and affliction. And what is taking place is that the wicked themselves are facing a torment or a response to something. And that is that they have come to the realization they have forsaken everything God did. A just being would not punish someone eternally for the sins committed during a brief lifetime, but notice this, but would proportion the punishment to the offense. And when you read the scripture, that is the understanding that God has given to all his creatures. A righteous being would not punish someone eternally for unavoidably lack of belief. And number four, a loving being would not bring about and perpetuate the suffering of those that it loves. When you take a good look at where the atheist stands on this concept, just simply using common sense, guess what? You know what I would do if I was listening to a debate? I would just get up and I'd say, Sir, I think I'm in this camp right now. Amen? Amen? Everyone here would agree with simply the common sense statements that individual makes. When God is dealing with the wicked, he does not torture them. He does allow them to see where they have rejected him. And the reason why is because they need an answer. They themselves need to know why heaven itself is not their home. And ultimately what we discover is that one of the reasons why God does not take the wicked to heaven is because heaven would be hell to them. God is actually preventing eternal hellfire torment torture of the sinners by completely annihilating them. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? God is actually preventing that ugly picture of God. Even Christopher Hitchens, a famed atheist who died sometime uh, two years ago, he said this, look, I don't want to go to heaven. It'd be like hell to me. And he's right. When you begin to think about these powerful thoughts and these, these uh, symptoms that exist, and it deals with this whole concept, this worldview that's in our world today. In fact, I love what one preacher said this way. He said this, first, I don't believe in the hell you believe in because God is not going to torment people for millions and millions of years. So we smell their burning flesh. But the problem is this, if the hell I believe in is hotter than the hell you believe in, they said, what do you mean? I said, the hell the Bible teaches about gets the job done. It burns up sinners and sin, consumes them to ashes, then God makes a new world but the hell you believe in isn't hot enough because it just torments people for millions of years. None other than this individual right here, Mark Finley. Amen. One of my favorite preachers right here. We believe in a, a destruction that's going to get the job done. Amen? And it's going to be a sad time. It's going to be a time where the, the wicked are realizing and recognizing why they cannot be in heaven. It's not that heaven didn't have a place in their heart for these sinners. It's that these sinners did not have a place in their heart for heaven. Heaven itself was not a place that was desirable to them. God's going to take people to heaven who want to be there and enjoy it. In fact, there was something powerful in Scripture right here. The Bible says something very remarkable in Isaiah 33, verse 14 and 15. It says this, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Isaiah is describing when sinners are just, there's this moment when sinners are afraid. Well, why were they afraid? 
Look what the Bible says next. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Hard to see right there, but I'll read it. Now watch the question they ask. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? They're, waiting, they're asking the question, wait a minute, who is the only one that could live in eternal fire? It's remarkable how the answer comes in the next verse. He who works, walks what? Righteously and speaks what? Uprightly. Now we're going to see something very interesting emerge. When you read the story of Moses, Moses was somebody, when he first encountered God, he encountered a bush, and the bush was on fire, right? What was the very first thing God told Moses? Take off your what? Shoes, because you're on what? Holy ground. Moses, when he first saw the presence of God and the bush was burning, he had to keep a healthy distance. But then the Bible began to describe as Moses became more and more acquainted with God. It says something so remarkable. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming what? Fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses himself dwelt in the fire of God. It is not the wicked that get to burn forever. The shocking thing is, it's going to be the righteous that are going to burn throughout all of eternity. We will dwell in the very presence of God, the fire of God itself. The scripture says this, talking about Song of Solomon, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Its flames are like flames of what? Fire, a most vehement fire. God here is comparing love and tying it intrinsically to this idea of fire. God's presence, the Bible says, is a consuming fire. He is love. And those who are climatized for heaven will be able to dwell in the presence of God Almighty. The scriptures actually teach concerning heaven, the new Jerusalem, and it begins to give the measurements of this place. You find it's a perfect cube. There's only one other perfect cube in all of scripture, the most holy place. In fact, when you look at the new Jerusalem, it gives several jewels that are making up the foundation. Those jewels are the exact same jewels the high priest wears, implying something so powerful that those who live in the New Jerusalem are those that are going to have a special privilege of not only home life, but experience. They will have a place so close to God that nobody else in the entire universe will be able to have or possess Ladies and gentlemen, when you begin to realize the most powerful things like this, the scripture says that those who are wise shall shine like the what? Brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. And so while we're here on this time, while we're here at this time, and while we're living this life, God is wanting to prepare us for heaven. And the way he does it is he wants to write the law of God upon our hearts. He wants us so ingrain that upon our hearts so that when we get to this place, it's not going to be an experience where we're gasping for breath 
and we're trying to understand what are we doing here we feel like we're dying but when we get to heaven it's going to be a place that feels like home already God wants to write the law of God upon your heart and by doing so he wants to write heaven upon your heart it's his promise that if you will let him he will begin to prepare you for this in India when the Muslims were invading India they were iconoclastic which means they were destroyers of idols and so these Muslim invaders were going throughout the Hindu towns they were destroying all the idols that were there they came to one and the general Mahmud came to this temple and he saw this idol that was there and he lowered his battle axe because he was ready to strike this idol and as he was racing towards it all of a sudden the Hindu priests they got in front they said please sir do not destroy this idol let us worship this idol you can continue doing your destruction but please preserve this idol and he's thinking about it. all of a sudden they brought this small bag of coins gold coins and they said sir we will give you this bag of gold coins and we will hide this idol and nobody else will know about it so he took that and he thought to himself it's just one I'll continue moving on and as he was about to leave all of a sudden he was filled with this kind of convicting integrity that was compelling him to destroy the idol he says I'm not gonna do this in front of my men and so he lowered his axe and he raced towards that idol and the Hindu priest scattered and as he struck that idol with his whole heart and he hit it with that battle axe all of a sudden the idol exploded and out came these gigantic diamonds you see the idol was being used as a piggy bank for diamonds but he could have walked away with, with just a small bag of coins but because he made this decision he reaped a greater blessing ladies and gentlemen when we allow God to write the law of God on our hearts and ask him to remove those things that are hurting us or destroying us or leading us astray from him when we ask him to remove those things and to impress upon our hearts ingrain that we will find that we will have gained a greater blessing the Bible says great peace have they which love thy law how much is heaven's peace worth to you what would you let hinder that experience what would you prevent how would you prevent God from wanting to do what he so wants to do and that is prepare you for heaven let's bow our heads for a word of prayer father we just thank you right now that love is pleading on our behalf thank you God that you not only grant to us pardon but power Father, we're asking and praying that the law of love, the law of heaven would be written upon our hearts. God, this is a work that only you can do. And so right now we just consent to this work. Father, thank you that nobody knows what tomorrow will bring. 
But today, Father, we can walk away knowing that we have made all the decisions possible to honor and glorify you. We pray and ask that the things that we're struggling with, the things of this world, those places where we are breaking your law and hurting ourselves or hurting others, Father, we pray and ask that your love would wash away that sin. And God, that that same love would sanctify and change our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who does not want us to be afraid, but motivated by love to come to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.